Section six of Under the Greenwood Tree. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Under the Greenwood Tree by Thomas Hardy. Part one. Chapter six. Christmas morning. The choir at last reached their beds and slept like the rest of the parish. Dick's slumbers, through the three or four hours remaining for rest, were disturbed and slight, an exhaustive variation upon the incidents that had passed that night in connection with the school window going on in his brain every moment of the time. In the morning, do what he would, go upstairs, downstairs, out of doors, speak of the wind and weather, or what not, he could not refrain from an unceasing renewal in imagination of that interesting enactment. Tilted on the edge of one foot, he stood beside the fireplace watching his mother grilling rashers. There was nothing in grilling, he thought, unless the vision grilled. The limp rasher hung down between the bars of the gridiron like a cat in a child's arms, but there was nothing in similes unless she uttered them. He looked at the daylight shadows of a yellow hue, dancing with the firelight shadows in blue on the whitewashed chimney corner. But there was nothing in shadows. Perhaps the new young school, uh, Miss Fancy Day, will sing in church with us this morning, he said. The tranter looked a long time before he replied, I fancy she will, and yet I fancy she won't. Dick implied that such a remark was rather to be tolerated than admired, though deliberateness in speech was known to have as a rule more to do with the machinery of the tranter's throat than with the matter enunciated. They made preparations for going to church as usual, Dick with extreme alacrity, though he would not definitely consider why he was so religious. His wonderful nicety in brushing and cleaning his best light boots had features which elevated it to the rank of an art. Every particle and speck of last week's mud was scraped and brushed from toe and heel. New blacking from the packet was carefully mixed and made use of, regardless of expense. A coat was laid on and polished, then another coat for increased blackness, and lastly a third to give the perfect and mirror-like jet which the hoped-for rencounter demanded. It being Christmas Day, the tranter prepared himself with Sunday particularity. Loud sousing and snorting noises were heard to proceed from a tub in the back quarters of the dwelling, proclaiming that he was there performing his great Sunday wash, lasting half an hour, to which his washings on workday mornings were mere flashes in the pan. Vanishing into the outhouse with a large brown towel, and the above-named bubblings and snortings being carried on for about twenty minutes, the tranter would appear round the edge of the door, smelling like a summer fog, and looking as if he had just narrowly escaped a watery grave with the loss of much of his clothes, having since been weeping bitterly till his eyes were red. A crystal drop of water hanging ornamentally at the bottom of each ear, one at the tip of his nose, and others in the form of spangles about his hair. After a great deal of crunching upon the sanded stone floor by the feet of father, son, and grandson as they moved to and fro in these preparations, the bass viol and fiddles were taken from their nook, and the strings examined and screwed a little above concert pitch, that they might keep their tone when the service began, to obviate the awkward contingency of having to retune them at the back of the gallery during a cough, sneeze, or amen an inconvenience which had been known to arise in damp, wintry weather. 
The three left the door and paced down Melstock Lane and across the Ulys, bearing under their arms the instruments in faded green baize bags and old brown music books in their hands. Dick continually finding himself in advance of the other two, and the tranter moving on with toes turned outwards to an enormous angle. At the foot of an incline, the church became visible through the north gate, or church hatch as it was called there. Seven agile figures in a clump were observable beyond, which proved to be the choristers waiting, sitting on an altar tomb to pass the time and letting their heels dangle against it. The musicians being now in sight, the youthful party scampered off and rattled up the old wooden stairs of the gallery like a regiment of cavalry. The other boys of the parish waiting outside and observing birds, cats and other creatures till the vicar entered, when they suddenly subsided into sober churchgoers and passed down the aisle with echoing heels. The gallery of Melstock Church had a status and sentiment of its own. A stranger there was regarded with a feeling altogether differing from that of the congregation below towards him. Banished from the nave as an intruder whom no originality could make interesting, he was received above as a curiosity that no unfitness could render dull. The gallery, too, looked down upon and knew the habits of the nave to its remotest peculiarity, and had an extensive stock of exclusive information about it. Whilst the knave knew nothing of the gallery folk as gallery folk beyond their loud-sounding minims and chest notes. Such topics as that the clerk was always chewing tobacco except at the moment of crying amen, that he had a dust-hole in his pew, that during the sermon certain young daughters of the village had left off caring to read anything so mild as the marriage service for some years, and now regularly studied the one which chronologically follows it that a pair of lovers touched fingers through a knot-hole between their pews in the manner ordained by their great examplers, Pyramus and Thisbe, that Mrs. Ledlow, the farmer's wife, counted her money and reckoned her week's marketing expenses during the first lesson. All news to those below were stale subjects here. Old William sat in the centre of the front row, his violoncello between his knees and two singers on each hand. Behind him on the left came the treble singers and Dick, and on the right the tranter and the tenors. Farther back was old male with the altos and supernumeraries. But before they had taken their places, and while they were standing in a circle at the back of the gallery practising a psalm or two, Dick cast his eyes over his grandfather's shoulder and saw the vision of the past night enter the porch door, as methodically as if she had never been a vision at all. A new atmosphere seemed suddenly to be puffed into the ancient edifice by her movement, which made Dick's body and soul tingle with novel sensations. Directed by Shiner, the church warden, she proceeded to the small aisle on the north side of the chancel, a spot now allotted to a throng of Sunday-school girls, and distinctly visible from the gallery front by looking under the curve of the furthermost arch on that side. Before this moment the church had seemed comparatively empty. Now it was thronged, and as Miss Fancy rose from her knees and looked around her for a permanent place in which to deposit herself, finally choosing the remotest corner, 
Dick began to breathe more freely the warm new air she had brought with her, to feel rushings of blood, and to have impressions that there was a tie between her and himself visible to all the congregation. Ever afterwards the young man could recollect individually each part of the service of that bright Christmas morning, and the trifling occurrences which took place as its minutes slowly drew along. The duties of that day divided themselves by a complete line from the services of other times. The tunes they that morning essayed remained with him for years, apart from all others. Also the text, also the appearance of the layer of dust upon the capitals of the piers. That the holly bough in the chancel archway was hung a little out of the centre. All the ideas, in short, that creep into the mind when reason is only exercising its lowest activity through the eye. By chance, or by fate, another young man who attended Melstock Church on that Christmas morning had, towards the end of the service, the same instinctive perception of an interesting presence in the shape of the same bright maiden, though his emotion reached a far less developed stage, and there was this difference, too, that the person in question was surprised at his condition, and sedulously endeavoured to reduce himself to his normal state of mind. He was the young vicar, Mr. Maybold. The music on Christmas mornings was frequently below the standard of church performances at other times. The boys were sleepy from the heavy exertions of the night. The men were slightly wearied. And now, in addition to these constant reasons, there was a dampness in the atmosphere which still further aggravated the evil. Their strings, from the recent long exposure to the night air, rose whole semitones and snapped with a loud twang at the most silent moment, which necessitated more retiring than ever to the back of the gallery, and made the gallery throats quite husky with the quantity of coughing and hemming required for tuning in. The vicar looked cross. When the singing was in progress, there was suddenly discovered to be a strong and shrill reinforcement from some point, ultimately found to be the schoolgirl's aisle. At every attempt, it grew bolder and more distinct. At the third time of singing, these intrusive feminine voices were as mighty as those of the regular singers. In fact, the flood of sound from this quarter assumed such an individuality that it had a time, a key, almost a tune of its own, surging upwards when the gallery plunged downwards, and the reverse. Now this had never happened before within the memory of man. The girls, like the rest of the congregation, had always been humble and respectful followers of the gallery, singing at sixes and sevens, if without gallery leaders, never interfering with the ordinances of these practised artists having no will, union, power, or proclivity, except it was given them from the established choir enthroned above them. A good deal of desperation became noticeable in the gallery throats and strings, which continued throughout the musical portion of the service. Directly the fiddles were laid down, Mr. Penny's spectacles put in their sheath, and the text had been given out, an indignant whispering began. "'Did ye hear that, souls?' said Mr. Penny, in a groaning breath. "'Brazen-faced huzzies,' said Bowman. "'True. Why, they were every note as loud as we, fiddles and all,' 
if not louder." "Fiddles and all," echoed Bowman bitterly. "Shall anything saucier be found than united woman?" Mr. Spinks murmured. "What I want to know is," said the tranter, as if he knew already, but that civilization required the form of words, "what business people have to tell maidens to sing like that, when they don't sit in a gallery, and never have entered one in their lives? That's the question, my sonnies." "'Tis the gallery have got to sing, all the world knows," said Mr. Penny. "'Why, souls, what's the use of the ancients spending scores of pounds to build galleries if people down in the lowest depths of the church sing like that at a moment's notice?' "'Really, I think we useless ones had better march out of church, fiddles and all,' said Mr. Spinks, with a laugh which to a stranger would have sounded mild and real. Only the initiated body of men he addressed could understand the horrible bitterness of irony that lurked under the quiet words, useless ones, and the ghastliness of the laughter, apparently so natural. "'Never mind, let em sing too, twill make it all the louder,' <laughs> said Leaf. "'Thomas Leaf, Thomas Leaf, where have you lived all your life?' said Grandfather William sternly. The quailing leaf tried to look as if he had lived nowhere at all. "'When all's said and done, my sonnies,' Reuben said, "'there'd have been no real harm in their singing if they'd let nobody hear em and only jined in now and then.' "'None at all,' said Mr. Penny. "'But though I don't wish to accuse people wrongfully, I'd say before my Lord Judge, that I could hear every note o' that last psalm come from em as much as from us, every note as if twas their own. Know it? Ah, I should think I did know it, Mr. Spinks was heard to observe at this moment, without reference to his fellow players, shaking his head at some idea he seemed to see floating before him, and smiling as if he were attending a funeral at the time. "'Ah, do I or don't I know it?' No one said, know what, because all were aware from experience that what he knew would declare itself in process of time. "'I could fancy last night that we should have some trouble with that young man,' said the tranter, pending the continuance of Spinks's speech, and looking towards the unconscious Mr. Maybold in the pulpit. "'I fancy,' said old William rather severely. I fancy there's too much whispering going on to be of any spiritual use to gentle or simple. Then folding his lips and concentrating his glance on the vicar, he implied that none but the ignorant would speak again, and accordingly there was silence in the gallery, Mr. Spinks's telling speech remaining forever unspoken. Dick had said nothing, and the tranter little, on this episode of the morning, for Mrs. Dewey at breakfast expressed it as her intention to invite the youthful leader of the culprits to the small party it was customary with them to have on Christmas night. A piece of knowledge which had given a particular brightness to Dick's reflections since he had received it, and in the tranter's slightly cynical nature, party feeling was weaker than in the other members of the choir, though, 
friendliness and faithful partnership still sustained in him a hearty earnestness on their account. End of section six. Recording by Rachel Lintern, Bristol, UK.